Father God, thank you for the wonderful privilege that we do have to hold a copy of your precious word and to read it and to study it together as we're doing here this morning. Thank you for the light that it sheds on our souls. And I think I talk for all of us, Lord, when I say that the desire of our hearts here is that we experience all that your son prayed for us in John 17 and what we know he continues to pray for us as our great high priest in heaven. Lord, we ask that we would be kept from the evil of this world and from the God of this world, the evil one, so that we are preserved blameless for that day when we stand faultless in your presence with exceeding joy and know that we truly were kept. We ask, Father, that you would continue in us also that marvelous work of sanctification and do so through the truth thy word is truth do so through the truth that we will consider here this morning and which we will further digest this week as we prepare our follow-up discussion questions and then share them together next week and father may there always be that invisible and inexplicable work in our spirit that separates us from our sins and causes us to look even fuller into the face of your son as revealed to us in in your word and which transforms us into his very image and now we ask that you would truly separate us from everything that would prevent us from entering into the spirit of the hour and from being able to receive those things that you have for each of us individually do for us today father what we cannot do for ourselves and fill our vision and and fill our focus so much with Christ that we are lifted up out of earth's care and out of ourselves and we can truly enjoy that unity of spirit for which your son prayed that we would all be one in him and we do ask these things in his name amen John 17, in our extended look at the Lord Jesus Christ's high priestly prayer, we have looked first at his prayer for himself some five weeks ago. I think we did this. This is our fifth week in this prayer, even though in your books, this is part four, we have spent five weeks. We had a week of introduction. In the books, by the way, this is lesson 163. First of all, he prayed for himself in verses 1 to 5, which was what every high priest of Israel had to do prior to, to entering into the Holy of Holies on one very special day of the year, the Day of Atonement. They were first to pray for their sins, and then they would pray for the people of Israel and confess their sins. There was a great difference, however, in the Lord's prayer for himself from what the high priests, all those prototypes, had to do. Because the Lord Jesus, when he first prayed for himself, he did not confess his sins. Why? Right, exactly. He had no sins. Instead, he prayed for something that no high priest of Israel would ever have dared to pray for. What did he pray for? His glorification. He asked that he would be glorified now that his work had been finished. That's in verse 4. Remember, his work hasn't really been finished because he hasn't gone to the cross yet. But he was seeing with past, present, future eyes. And so it was a done deal from his perspective. So he says, glorify thou me father with the glory i had with thee before the world was created 
And we learned that that was not a selfish prayer, was it? Because his request was really, you know, to in order to return to his pre-existence glory meant that he would have to resurrect from the dead. He knew he was going to die. He's already prophesied that. He's predicted that. He's told his men that. So to return to his pre-existence glory means that he was praying for his resurrection from the dead. And he needed to be resurrected from the dead so that he could prove to mankind he had the power to give eternal life. And in proving to man that he had the power to give eternal life and giving men eternal life, he was thereby glorifying his father. So remember, it was cyclical. And, and so it wasn't a selfish prayer at all because in praying for his own glory, he was thinking of his father's glory. And he was thinking of mankind's salvation. Well, then in the second and longest section of this prayer, which was verses 6 to 19, the Lord prayed for who? His apostles. And really, you know, all living believers at that time. And in a sense, he was praying for you and I too. In the first six and a half verses of that section, he presented his father with the reasons his father should answer his requests for his men. He said, they have kept thy word. They have received thy words, father. And they have known surely that I came out from thee. You have given them to me. They were thine, and you gave them to me. So now they're not only still thine, but they're also mine, and I am glorified in them. I'm leaving them, and they're going to be left in the world, and therefore, Father, answer my requests on their behalf. And then beginning in the latter half of verse 11, he did start to state his actual requests for his followers. He prayed for their preservation, that they be kept. He prayed for their preservation unto an ultimate unity that was unbreakable. It was a comprehensive oneness that had as its most adequate parallel example, the most adequate parallel example, the unity of the Godhead, the members of the Godhead. He said, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me that they may be one as what? As we are. And so he prayed for their preservation unto an ultimate unity, a unity such as the members of the Godhead share. And then he also prayed in verse 13 for their joy. The Lord indirectly, he was speaking to his father, but indirectly, because he prayed this prayer out loud, indirectly he was telling his men that his purpose in praying in their presence was that his joy would be fulfilled in them. And then in verses 17 to 19, he further prayed for their sanctification. That by way of the word of truth, which is what? The book in your lap, the scriptures, thy word is truth. That by way of the word of God, the Lord would continuously cleanse them in practice from their sins. Now, now they were already cleansed from their sins in position, but we all, you know, in position, God sees us through the righteousness of Christ, right? But in our practice, well, that's a little bit of a different story. So they, he was asking that the Father, through the Word, would continue to cleanse them in their daily practice, in their daily walk. So who does all the work? Who does the keeping? In this prayer, he's saying, Father, keep them. Father, preserve them. Father, unify them. Father, sanctify them. Who does all the work? What is our task in all of this? Abiding, isn't it? 
abiding in the vine and staying in the word. And then he will, he will do all the rest of it. It's his work through the spirit. Well, we come finally now to the third and final passage of the Lord's intercessory prayer. And we are going to wrap this up today. Can you believe it? Uh, next week, we're going to enter into the Garden of Gethsemane with, his, with the Lord and his men. That was a long walk from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. I imagine it took them maybe 20, 30 minutes. It's taken us how long? I don't know. I've lost track, but a long time. Maybe half a year to get to the Garden. <laughs> but anyway, somebody said yesterday that's because we're old. We walk slower. <laughs> I said, speak for yourself, lady. Oh, but anyway, we're finally in the third and final section, and it really is the most pertinent section for you and me. And that's because the Lord specifically here says, beginning of verse 20, that he prays on behalf of all those who would come to believe in him through apostolic testimony. And that would be all of us, because all of us have come to faith through the testimony of the apostles who recorded for us all about Jesus in the New Testament. And in this last division of the prayer, we are going to find that Jesus is praying for our earthly witness to this world. In verses 20 to 23, our earthly witness to this globe, I think I said it in the outline, and our heavenly witness of his glory in verse 24. Remember, that's the apex verse of the entire prayer is verse 24. And then he closed in prayer with a promise to his father that he would continue through his followers he would continue to uh, reveal God to men and has he kept that promise yes he has or you and I wouldn't be here today I probably will run out of time to get to a fuller explanation of verses 25 and 26 all right let's read the scripture passage for today and then we'll get into our lesson so look with me at verses 20 to 26 Jesus goes on in his prayer and he says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. And you could write next to that verse, me. That means me. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that thou hast sent me, that, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. What a prayer. I hope that you will never forget this prayer and that you will continuously review it over the next years of your life because this is... Do you understand it better? I hope you do. I sure do. It has really come alive for me. But, um, the first of the two petitions 
that will that include all of us who know Christ is found in verse 21. And he says there that they may all be what? One. And no, you did notice how many times the word one appears in verses 20 to 23, right? Five times he talks about us being one. Twice in verse 21, he says the word one. Twice in verse 22. And once in verse 23. As he had prayed for the unity of the apostles back in verse 11, if you look back there, he had prayed for them to be one. And just as he had prayed for their unity, he now petitions on behalf of all believers to have unity, oneness. But wow, has this been a perplexing problem and issue to people over the years since the Lord prayed it. This whole question of Christian unity of God's people has seriously, deeply occupied the thoughts and concerns of many people over the centuries. And why do you think that would be? I think you know. (laughs) Because as you look around, we see all the divisions and all the schisms in Christendom, don't we? You know, different church, a different denomination on every corner. And so there does not appear to be this oneness for which the Lord prayed here. And so people have been perplexed because, you know, the Lord's prayers are answered, aren't they? But here they say, they scratch their head and it seems to be that his prayer wasn't answered for the oneness of his people. So the first issue that we want to address has to do with the nature of the unity about which the Lord is petitioning. What is the nature of this oneness? And the most common interpretation regarding this unity is that it is institutional in nature, that the unity for which Jesus prayed is an actual unity that can be readily recognized by the world in one institutional body that is called, quote-unquote, the church, of Jesus Christ, or the very least, if it is not an institutional oneness for which he prayed, it was certainly an organizational oneness, an organizational unity. In other words, that there would be something visible, something corporate, something organized as a shared community that people of the world could point to and say, there is the church in one organization. So, we ask ourselves, was it institutional or was it organizational unity for which the Lord was praying on behalf of his people? Is that what it was? Lots of people think so. And so those people who do think this way, they look around and they see all of the various denominations and all of the divisions between professing Christians as one of the greatest obstacles to people coming to Christ. They believe that it would be much better for the world to be one to Christianity if we were all together in one big, organized, institutionalized, ecumenical body. And you can kind of go along with that thinking and say, well, that sounds good, doesn't it? As a matter of fact, that was the thinking, and it was originally good thinking, you know, in a way, um, that that caused the uh, organiz- it led to the organization of the World Council of Churches back in 1948 in Amsterdam. In fact, this thinking has been propagated so widely that the lack 
the lack of this kind of institutional unity is considered to be one of the very greatest scandals in church history. People who think like this are thinking, really, if you logically go down the line, they're thinking that we have to help Jesus get his prayer answered. Right? Isn't that what they're thinking? We have to help him by coming together in one big organized ecumenical community that we call the church so that we help this prayer that he prayed on our behalf. For one is we have to help him get that prayer answered. All right. So there is a ser- there's a very serious flaw in this viewpoint that says the Lord Jesus was praying for either organizational or institutional unity for his people. And that flaw is that it fails to deal with Christ's description of those for whose unity he is praying. The flaw in their viewpoint that all professing Christian people ought to be organized in an institutional oneness is that it fails to give due consideration to whom the Lord specifically told his Father he is praying. How did he describe the people for whom he is praying here and petitioning. How did he describe the people for whom he is praying that they have a oneness? Well, in verse 20, he said that they were those who would come to believe on him. How? Through apostolic testimony. Right. So then he is praying for those who put their faith in, in his verbal and, the verbal and written testimony of the apostles. So then you see it becomes important for us to know what the apostles believed, right? If we all came to faith through the apostles' testimony, isn't it important that we know what the apostles believed? Yes. Now we really understand why it was so important that he gave us a description of what the apostles believed in verses 6 to 11. Before he ever made a prayer request, remember, he said, this is why, Father, you should answer my request for them. It's because... And then he goes on to tell us what they believed. And for what would be true of their belief, you see, would likewise be true of the belief of all those who believed in their written testimony. And who were they? Well, they were those, first of all, verse 6, who kept God's word. What does that mean exactly? The apostles were those who kept God's word. Well, it means that they didn't just verbally acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They kept his word. It means they obeyed his words. They didn't just have a head knowledge. They weren't just, um, um, what is it? They weren't just hearers of the word. They were what? Doers of the word. They kept his words, which meant they really, truly did believe who he was. It also says that they believed that all things whatsoever were given to him, were given to him by God the Father. That was in verse 7. So this would mean, if they believed everything that was given to him was given to him by his Father, this would mean that they wouldn't question anything that Jesus taught or anything that Jesus said because they would recognize that all of it was sourced in God the Father. You see? Everything he said and everything he did, they would understand it came from God. And they believed surely that Jesus came out from God and that God sent him to earth, which we spent a whole lot of time talking about what that really means. It means that they believed in his eternality, 
He came out from God. He pre-existed before his incarnation. They believed in the virgin birth. In other words, in Isaiah, it says a child is born, but what else does it say? A son is given. A son is given. That means he pre-existed. That son was the son of God, and he was given to us. God with us, Emmanuel. It meant that they believed in his deity. And there's a whole lot of theological truth wrapped up in those few descriptions that we had of the apostles back in verses 6 to 11. There is the pre-existence of the Son of God. There is his, his oneness and full deity with his Father in him. The fullness of the Godhead is in bodily form, right? Um, his taking on of flesh in the incarnation, his teaching being the exact words of God the Father. There is the God-given totality of his mission and his work. The Lord Jesus said that those men for whom he prayed received all these truths, and they kept his word. And then in verse 20, he says that he prays for all those who believed on him through their words. And what does he pray? That we may all be that we may all be one. Now, we all surely know that immense, huge, visible-to-the-world institutions can be constructed to give a, the appearance of uniformity and conformity. But inwardly, they can be just a mass of compromised doctrines that have actually become very unbiblical and even heretical. True doctrinal unity is not merely a matter of what people profess with their mouth by some, in some creed, or, or it's not a document that they are willing to sign on a statement externally. True doctrinal unity is something that brings people together intrinsically. You know, fundamentally, it brings them together. And that is actually what defines Christian unity. And here's where I want you to go to Ephesians 4.13. Ephesians 4.13. The Apostle Paul stated that the unity which exists among true Christians, the unity that exists among true Christians, what did I say, 4.13? Yeah, there it is is um, the unity of the faith. You see that? The unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So whatever unity the Bible speaks of and whatever unity Christ prays for here in John 17 is not simply something institutional or something organizational. It is the unity of the Christian faith and it is the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God as he actually exists, his actual person. Now, hope this won't shock you, but I cannot have unity. And I can't even really enjoy fellowship with someone who tells me that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. Or, you know, someone who says they're a Christian and yet does not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Or maybe this person will even say, yes, Jesus was the Son of God, but then he goes on to say he was the Son of God just as we're all the sons of God. 
except that Jesus went further than any of us have ever yet gone. And I do not have unity with someone who says he does not accept that God would demand the blood sacrifice of an innocent sacrifice, the blood, the shed blood of an innocent sacrifice before he would forgive us of our sins. Because that person completely rejects the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. And I don't have unity with those who put the doctrines of men above the doctrines of Scripture. And I cannot have unity with those who put Christ to an open shame by continually re-sacrificing him as the quote-unquote victim of the Eucharist. I don't have any unity with those who add works to faith great to to faith by grace alone um, or with those who deny the virgin birth we talked about how important that is there are a lot of people who call themselves Christian and, and they deny the virgin birth or they deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and I can't have unity with anyone who claims that he is not very God of very gods Christ he is I do not have unity with those who say the Bible is not the inspired word of God and who maybe argue, and there are a lot of people who do, argue with some of Jesus' words and say, well, he was just intolerant. We can't really believe that he's the only way. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father but by him. Hmm. Isn't that a little narrow? Uh, or even, I have trouble having unity with people who argue with Paul. We talked about that. Because I believe that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And those weren't just Paul's opinions. He said, everything I have said is the commandments of the Lord. The issue, the whole issue, is not denominational. I want to get that cleared up right now. Okay? We might have little differences in our denominations. But the whole issue is not denominational. The issue is the unity of the faith. And the knowledge of Jesus Christ and his person, regardless of the denomination. No matter what denomination a person may be, when he rejects or she rejects apostolic testimony regarding who Jesus Christ really is and regarding the nature of the work which he did on the cross, the unity of the faith and the true knowledge of the Son of God does not exist between those the Lord is praying for here and those who categorically deny those doctrines others say okay so did you get that all right he's not he's not praying for organizational or institutional unity and he tells us he's praying for the unity of those who really believe who he is and believe in the true faith of christianity others say though that jesus here was speaking of the ethnic unity which would come to exist between jews and gentiles you know, a unity which was created by the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. We read about it. When Jews and Gentiles equally received apostolic testimony and became one. You know, that middle wall of partition was broken down uh, between Jews and Gentiles. And that was a wonderful unity, wasn't it? That God brought about between peoples that were otherwise just, you know, so opposed to one another. The Jews and the Gentiles, by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, became one in the body of the church. And that was magnificent. 
Um, and it was the fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies. It was also the fulfillment of the Lord's own words back in John 10 when he was talking to Jews and he said, I have other sheep that will be brought into the fold. And who was he speaking about? Gentiles, the Gentiles who would be brought into the fold. But Jesus here in John 17 is praying for more, more than ethnic unity. Yeah, ethnic unity did come about, but he's praying for even more than that. And we know this because of the illustration he used to help explain the kind of unity for which he prayed. And what was the illustration he used to help explain the unity for which he's praying? Well, look at verse 21. That they all may be one, and here's the illustration. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. You see, he's referring to far more than Gentiles and Jews having a common belief and worship system. He's referring to a unity that is best paralleled by the members of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And this is what you might want to write if you're inclined to write in your Bible, which I do. But if you don't, if you have a problem with it, that's fine. But if you want to write next to verse 21, these words, this might help you in the future. Spiritual unity. What was he praying for? Spiritual unity. You knew that all along. It just took me a long time to get there, right? He's praying for spiritual unity. He is not speaking of institutional or organizational unity. Although, you know what? Those things would be nice. If we did have organized, institutionalized unity, that would be nice if, if it could be obtained, if it could be obtained through right doctrine, through true doctrine. That would be nice. But he is clear, and he's clearly here referring to more than ethnic unity, although that too was wonderful that it, that took place. But what he's really referring to is spiritual unity, meaning the unity of the spirit. He's basically speaking of a unity of essence like the members of the Godhead are one in essence. God's true people, genuine believers, those who can look at verses 6 to 11 and say, yeah, that's me. I believe that. I believe that. He's praying that um, that. True Christians are one in internal essence so that we all have a unity in spirit. He's praying for a oneness that is not just an external institution or organization, and it does not just cross ethnic barriers. He's praying for a oneness in nature, a oneness that is both internal and spiritual. So I want to expand a little bit more on this from some other New Testament scriptures. You know, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are introductory. Of course, they tell us about the earthly life of Jesus Christ, but they also are introductory in that they introduce many facts to us. But if we only had them, then we would have a lot of truths, I mean, a lot of uh, statements that were made that we never really would come to fully understand. Because the Lord would make a statement, and he wouldn't expand on it a lot of times, would he? And so that's why we have a whole other section of our New Testaments that further explain a lot of those introductory statements. And though that other section consists of 21 epistles. The epistles were not the wives of the apostles. You know that, right? <laughs> Old joke, I know. But uh, the epistles... <laughs> 
The epistles are apostolic interpretation. In them, for example, we find extended teaching that expands our understanding and confirms the nature of this unity for which Christ prayed. And sure enough, we do find out when we go to the New Testament epistles that it was a spiritual unity for which he was praying. Look, for example, in 1 Corinthians 2.13, or just listen to me if you don't want to go there. But in 1 Corinthians 12.13, the Apostle Paul writes that it is by one Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, by one Spirit that we are all baptized into what? One body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, you see there's that ethnic unity. But then it goes beyond that ethnic unity because he says, or whether we be bond or free, whether we be slave or free. You see, it isn't just people of different nationalities. It isn't just people of different races. It is um, people of different social classes, people of different linguistic groups, people of different sexes, male, female, um, who are bound together in spiritual unity in Christ. All, in fact, all of the differences that exist among people, whether natural differences, like I'm a woman and my husband's a man, that's a natural difference, or whether man-made differences, like the Hindus have with a you know, man-made caste system, which is horrible. But all barriers and differences between people are overcome. They are all bridged in this common unity in the spirit. It's in the spirit that we are baptized into one body. And Ephesians 4, 3 talks about the unity of the body and the unity of the spirit. It's a unity that is both created and bonded by the third member of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. What is it like for differing Christian people, like those who don't even live in the same century as us? Think about this. It also crosses generational barriers. Let's say, they, take the apostles who laid the foundation for the church, take the apostles, and then let's, let's say, for example, let's take some of the members, the original members of, of one of the seven churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3, like the Church of Philadelphia. That was a good church, right? So let's go with those church members, the members of the Church of Philadelphia and the apostles, and let's take some of the reformers. Who do you want to take? Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox. Um, there are a lot of Johns. John Wesley, Charles Wesley, whoever else you want to throw in there. And then let's take you and I today in the 21st century. What does it mean for all of us? Going back, some of those guys are like over two, about 2,000 years old. What is it like for all of us to be one? What does it mean that we are all one in the spirit and in one body? What is the nature of of the unity of a body. See, the New Testament talks about us being one body. So what is the nature of the unity of a body? Well, it's certainly not the unity of function that he's talking about because hands do what hands do, feet do what feet do, and mouths do what mouths do, right? So it's not the unity of function. The body members certainly have different functions. My hands do different things than my knees. And I'm glad for that. It would be funny to have knees like hands. It might be convenient when I pick something off the floor, but 
But you see, so my body members have different functions, but what they do have in common is they all have the same nature. (laughs) The body is a unity of nature. All the members of my body, even though they are different and they do have different functions and they do have different abilities. You know, my heart pumps blood and my liver does what a liver does. (laughs) Filters and, you know, all the, the members of our bodies have different functions and they have different strengths and they have different weaknesses. I have a weak back, for example. But they have different strengths and weaknesses, just like think of the body of Christ, you know. And yet... Every single member, I know this is going to shock some of you, but every single member of my body is as a human nature. It's human in nature. No, I am not angelic. I know you thought I was. (laughs) Yeah, my husband would say, or demonic. (laughs) None of my body members are animalistic. My grandson asked me on the way to Bible study one Monday, my little four-year-old grandson, I think he was three at the time, He said, Grandma, why don't we have tails? (laughs) And I said, well, Christian, that's because it would make it very hard for you to stay in your car seat. (laughs) He thought that was so funny, but I don't have a tail. Do you? hope not. I don't even have feathers, (laughs) even though I'm married to a foul person. He does love his birds. Um, I don't have a beak. Hmm. Well, I know it looks like it, but I don't have hooves, right? As a matter of fact, I wasn't even evolved from an animal. Hmm. And neither were you. That is a lie. I'm of a completely different kind than the animal world. I am human in nature, and every part of my body is human in nature. In fact, Every single one of, if you go down to the tiniest microscopic parts of my body, my cells, all have my very unique DNA. And so does your body. Every little part of you has your unique DNA. So my body is all one in essence, as is yours. And this body illustration is used very appropriately in the scripture to speak of all corporate true believers. You see, in essence, we could say that all of us in this room and in common with the apostles and those members of the Church of Philadelphia centuries ago and the, mem- and the reformers and people 200 years ago and down to our own century who have been born again, we all have, we could say this, the same spiritual DNA. I like that. It's the same in all of us who truly believe. And now remember another one of the Lord's beautiful illustrations that he gave us just a few chapters ago when he said, John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. Now here he is going from body, you know, human bodies to the plant world. He was saying that we are all organically one. We're all linked together. In fact, if we were separate from him, the vine... We would perish, right? The branches that aren't abiding on the vine perish. They have no life. Jesus is using an example, an illustration from plant life. A branch must be attached to the vine. It's absolutely vital to the existence of that uh, plant. 
think of a, think of a, a vine and all the branches. No, well, the branches look different, don't they? Every branch has it's it's a little bit different. It's a little unique. Some branches bear more fruit than other branches, but they all are one in essence when they're attached to the same stem, the same vine, aren't they? Because we're all attached to Christ, there is a oneness to us, and we are all of the same nature. All true branches of a vine have the same nature and essence. And this is also true in another example, and it is that we are a family. We're called the family of God. I love that song. It's a, what is it, how's it go? The family of God. Yeah, I love that song, even though I can't ever remember tunes. (laughs) We are a family because when you come to Christ, you are reborn, all right? At your first birth, you were born into the family of God. Mankind, humanity, physically. At your second birth, you're born into the family of God spiritually. Second Peter 1.4 tells us this. It says that at the time of the new birth, we become partakers of the divine nature. Wow, have you ever digested that? The new birth, you become a partaker of the divine nature. You're born into the family of God. So the unity is a unity of nature. By virtue of the new birth and by virtue that we are baptized by Christ, our head, in the spirit, into one body. It's like a vine and its branches. What becomes clear as we look at our unity this way is that Christians are not just a society of friends. Do you really, do we really, really understand that? As we gather here this morning, all of us here in this room, we're not just a Bible study of Christian friends and acquaintances. We are all one in spirit. We are one in the Lord by nature. And that isn't just true of this study. It's true of anyone who um, is with us in the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, regardless of their label, of their denomination. I have news for you. When we all get to heaven, you're not going to be a Baptist anymore. (laughs) Or a Methodist. Or a Presbyterian. Or whatever your little label is down here. I don't like the little labels. When people ask me, what are you, you know, when they're referring to my faith, I tell them, I am a Christian, and then my second definition is, I'm a biblicist. I'm a biblicist. I believe the Bible. Now, you know, the denominations are fine, and they developed, and there's little differences that we have, but institutional, organizational unity is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. What is relevant and what is being described here is a unity that exists between people who believe all that the apostles taught about Jesus Christ and have embraced that truth to themselves. And as a result of that faith, we are an entity that can be described as the family of God, the vine and the branches, the members of Christ's body. The bride of Christ is another example. And now the best, and the closest parable, apparel, parallel, is that we can be described as having the kind of unity that exists between the members of the Godhead. 
So that's why, you see, when we come to... Do you feel something special when you come here with your sisters in Christ? And that's because you're really a family. We, we really are sisters. I've said many times, I feel closer to you guys than I do my own family, my own sister, my own brother in the flesh because they're not in the family of God. That's why you can meet someone in a completely different country who doesn't even maybe speak the same language. We had this experience when we were down in Chile. We met some Christians, and all we could do was smile at each other and say some words like Jesus and uh, uh, things like that, and they got it, and they're smiling, and we're smiling, and there was just that unity, right? Because you know the spirit in you knits together with them, and you're, you just know. So here's where you participate, and this will be fun, but let's do it fast because of time. I want you to just quickly tell me uh, you don't, you know, you're born. Is that if you're born again, you know it? Would you raise your hand so we can praise the Lord? Praise the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? All right. So we've gotten that taken care of. Now I just want you to shout out your church, okay? Just shout it out. Her. No, no. One at a time. <laughs> well, you were doing the unity thing. That was good. <laughs> All right. One at a time. Okay. One at a time. Just out loud. I'm sorry. Crossroads. Union Pines Baptist? What did you say, Union Pines? Jonesboro Heights Baptist. Grace Chapel. Hillman Grove Baptist. So do be loud. because First Baptist. St. Luke Methodist. Tyson Creek. Northview. Sanford Church of God. Cameron Pat Presbyterian. Okay, once we have one, let's go on. Cameron Baptist. I'm sorry. Okay, whatever that was. Good. Faith something. <laughs> Turner's Chapel. New Hope. Cool Springs. Glorious Light Deliverance. What a name. Great. Faith Springs. Oh, Flat. Oh, yeah, I know Flat Springs. Okay. Yates Thaggard Baptist Church. Thank you. I'm sorry? Mays? M-A-Y-S. Okay, Mays. I haven't heard of that one. I'm sorry, what did you say? Center. Center Methodist. You know better because you look at all the lists. Oh, Tramway Baptist. We have our one representative from Tramway Baptist. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Shallow Well. Rocky Fork Christian. We miss anybody? Y'all? Okay. We got a temple in there. <laughs> Good. So you see what we have in this room is exactly what the Lord was praying for. You all said you were born again. I hope everybody did. I couldn't look at all hands. And yet we have different denominational labels. We go to different churches, right? But we're family. And that's what we're going to enjoy in heaven. Oh, it's just gives me chill bumps and I think it was such a good perfect picture because you don't get this picture in your churches do <laughs> all right so we're going to we're, we're described here as uh, having the unity that exists between the members of the Godhead and we ask how in the world could that ever happen and the key is found in two words look at verse 21 look at verse 21 two words that they also may be one and here's the two words what are they in us that they also may be one in us. You know what? I cannot indwell you. 
I'm way too big to indwell you. (laughs) And you cannot indwell me. But, but, if we are all truly in Christ, if the Spirit is in us and Christ indwells us and the Father indwells Christ, then somehow we are one in them, aren't we? It's a great mystery to us. None of us can truly comprehend that. It's just too big for us to wrap our minds about it. But it is the reality of the unity Christ prayed for in John 17. So was the Lord's Prayer answered? That's the big question. Yes, it was. His prayers are always answered because his will is always in perfect accord with his Father's will. So when did his prayer begin to be answered? On the day of Pentecost. Why? What happened that began the answering of this prayer for this Godhead type of oneness of believers? Well, Acts 2.33, the Lord Jesus Christ being at the right hand of God exalted after his resurrection and ascension, he's at the right hand of God the Father. He received the promise of the Holy Spirit and he sent him forth. He sent forth the Holy Spirit. The baptizer was the Lord himself. And he baptized in the Spirit all those who had put their faith in him. 120 of them on the day of Pentecost. And later, on that very same glorious day, more than 3,000 other believers believed in him through the witness of those 120. And regardless of national or racial or ethnic or social or sex, or language barriers. The Lord himself took care of the language barrier, right? On the day of Pentecost. Regardless of all those barriers, those people became one in spirit and the true church was born. And it's been continuing on since then. And this brings us to the end of verse 21. You're thinking, wow, Catherine, you're in trouble. You're still in verse 20. Where we find that there is a purpose for this unity. Now, there are other purposes for the unity for which he prays, but this is the one he discusses in this prayer. He says, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And so we move now from discussing the the nature of the unity to the purpose for the unity. And that purpose could be stated in one word. And you could write this word next to that verse if you want to. That one word is evangelism. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Now, even though we have discussed before that Jesus, as the high priest of believers, does not pray, he does not intercede on behalf of the world. Remember he said that in verse 9. He does not pray for the world. Yet we find here that the reason he wants his followers preserved in sanctified, sanctified unity and oneness is so that through them people of the world would also come to believe that God has sent Christ into the world. That people in the world would also understand that not only was a child born, but a son was given. See, there's great theology, again, wrapped up in this one bundle. Remember the Jews, meaning the religious leaders of Israel, constantly were coming to Christ and saying, Who is your father? Just tell us, who is your father? And he repeatedly told them the truth. They didn't like to hear it. And they thought it was blasphemous, but he kept saying, God is my father. I am the son of God. You see, if they had believed him, 
on that one point, if they had believed that he truly had been sent by God, that he was the Son of God, that he pre-existed before he was incarnate, if they had believed him, then they could have accepted everything else that he ever had to say. You see, if you believe that Jesus Christ of Nazareth came down from heaven and that he pre-existed before he was ever born, then you would not have any problem when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but my, by me. Whatever he teaches about himself when he says, I and my Father are one, whatever he says, you wouldn't deny it. And you see, this kind of unity will have an evangelistic influence. I wish that all of the denominations and all of the churches in this country and around the world were teaching this. You know, they might profess it, but are they really believing it? Are they, are, and are they teaching it to their people? If they were, our influence would be successful. And this is why the early church was so successful evangelistically, because she had a unified understanding of the faith and of the knowledge of Jesus Christ as God come in the flesh. So her influence was great, wasn't it? But what happened? What began to happen? Well, very soon, the tares began to enter into the church, infiltrate the church bringing with them their damnable heresies and doctrines of devils. You notice whenever it talks about false doctrine, it's plural, doctrines. When it talks about true doctrine, it's always singular. They brought in their doctrines of devils, and, and uh, they either altered the faith by adding to it or subtracting from it, Adding to it by, you know, the Judaizers came along and said, well, it's not enough just to believe in Jesus and, you know, by, by grace through faith alone. You have to be circumcised. And then there is a whole group of people that say you also have to be, you know, baptized, which is good to follow the Lord in baptism. You should, but it's not mandatory. The thief on the cross was never baptized. It's not mandatory for salvation, right? But they'd add all kinds of things. In fact, they brought in a whole bunch of idols into the church, and they just changed their names, didn't they? Added all kinds of things, infiltrated the true church, and they took, they added to, and they took from. That's part that drives me crazy is how many churches are taking from the church the true simplicity of the gospel that even a child can understand. They'll beat all around the bush and never get right to the point of how you can be born again and that you need to be born again. It's not just enough to have head knowledge. You have to move it down 18 inches and receive him to as many as received him to them gave you power to become the children of God. And, and, you know, he's at the door knocking and you must open the door and he'll come in. And they just think that everybody, just, you know, if you've been um, through catechism or if you've been baptized in an infant or if you've taken this sacrament, oh, then you'll be okay. They're taking from the truth of the gospel. So many people are sitting in churches thinking that they are, quote-unquote, a Christian, and they've never been born again. We all know that, don't we? And that's, that's terrible. It's tragic. Or So they came in with their heresies, and they either changed the faith, they altered the faith, or they denied Christ's person in one way or another as God come in flesh. When you get away from those foundational unities about the faith and the knowledge of who Christ is, then there is all kinds of confusion in the world. Because the unsaved world looks at all those who profess to be Christians, all those who say they have faith in Jesus, but they deny him in so many different ways. It's just amazing to me anybody gets saved when they listen to who says they're a Christian. 
and how they define Christianity and Jesus Christ. Some will say, well, he's just a good man. Just a good man. Well, good men don't go around saying they're the only way to God, right? And lie. Or they'll say he um, is just someone who serves as a good example for us. Uh, or just another prophet of God. You know, even the Muslims believe Jesus was a prophet of God. They just happen to believe that Muhammad was a better prophet and the final prophet. Um, or they'll say he was a good teacher. Not really God. A man who managed to obtain Godhood status, um, like any of us can, if we really live good lives, you know. Or a spirit. Some people say that he was a spirit who never really did live in the flesh. Or a man who died and resurrected from the dead, but not bodily. You know, there's a whole bunch of people out there who say that they are Christians, but if you get down to it and, they, and you ask them who Jesus was, they'll, they'll have to admit that they do believe he was the created brother of Lucifer. Now, I don't want to get political here, but there was a pastor in Texas who stated something as truth and everybody just flew off the wheel when, they, when he said that, that we have several men running for president on the Republican ticket who, who are not Christians. Well, we probably have more than that who aren't Christians. Um, but there are two who are of the Church of Mormonism, the Church of the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ. Okay? And you don't know what they believe about Jesus? That he is a created brother of Lucifer. And one of those men is high up in Mormonism. And yes, he does wear his wool underwear. I don't know if you know that, but the Mormons, as they get up higher, they have to wear woolen underwear. And I was talking to a, a Mormon, a previous Mormon who is now born again Christian and um, I mean, the, these people I was talking to are big in the Mormon church and, and they know about Mitt Romney and I'm, I like the man and if you vote for him you know I'm, I don't have a problem because you know there's a lot that aren't Christians who are running for president and so you know just vote whoever the Lord leads you to vote for but I'm just saying for people to say that he's a Christian when he isn't is is false and that pastor was right to say that Mitt Romney was is not a Christian is true he is not a Christian you're not a Christian if you believe Jesus was created and that he is the brother of Lucifer and that you take secret rites and in your woolen underwear you are sewn in satanic symbols I know it's just it's strange but I'm just saying you know and I like Mitt Romney as a man you know, so I'm not saying don't vote for him. I'm just saying if you're voting for somebody because you think he's a Christian, well, he isn't. All right? Did you get that? Did you get that? Okay. Right. The, the pastor got blasted because he spoke the truth, all right? And if I was on TV, I'd get blasted away too for saying that, all right? But it is the truth. Um, okay, where was I? And, and they say all kinds of things. You know, there's all kinds of... Def it's just no wonder that the world is confused about a, what a real Christian is. And that kind of disunity does not contribute to evangelism. At least not true evangelism. It might increase the size of a one-world ecumenical uniformity when you do away with all the doctrines, right? Then you can have a great, big, huge, one-world uniformity, but it doesn't do anything to bring the lost into the true kingdom, the kingdom of God. Uh, in fact, I would say most who are within that kind of uniformity where you get a, do away with doctrine, most of those people aren't in the kingdom themselves. 
If Jesus had been praying for that kind of ecumenical oneness, then this prayer would have been prayed in vain. Because so far in history, up to now the 21st century, Christendom contains many factions and many divisions. Christendom is divided against herself, and she is revealed to the world as mass confusion. If Christ had been praying for an administrative, worldwide, organized, institutional, ecumenical oneness, his prayer still would not have been answered. Only in the last days, in the tribulation world, will his prayer seem to be answered. Because there will be, in the seven years of tribulation, a one-world organized ecumenical church that temporarily exists after the true church is out of here. And you know how that one-world church is described? Not as the bride of Christ. Revelation 17.1, she's described as a great whore. hate to say these words, but that's how the Bible describes her, as a great whore. She is certainly not God's answer to his son's prayer for unity. She's apostate. She is the work of the evil, unholy trinity. Satan, the Antichrist, and the, the false prophet. The spiritual union of believers, you know, has already begun on work on earth. The work has already begun. We saw that it began on the day of Pentecost. But you do know that it is yet incomplete. And it is yet immature. Why? Well, it's incomplete because not every sheep has yet been brought into the fold. There are many sheep who will be brought into the fold. So it's incomplete. The unity we're going to have one day is incomplete. There will even be sheep being brought into the fold during the tribulation, many of them. For another thing, it's, it's immature, this unity is immature because we're still in the flesh. Even though we have a positional unity, yet we still have all these denominations and divisions in different churches, don't we? Because we're still in the flesh. So we're still immature and incomplete. Where is it that our oneness, such as the Godhead shares oneness, will have its full fruition. Where? Not until the life to come. In heaven, our unity is going to be absolute. We will be, look at the end of verse 23, there in heaven we will be perfect in one. That perfect means we'll be mature and we'll be complete. So in John 17, 20 to 23, Christ had made the request that his true followers be his united earthly witnesses to the globe. And in verse 24, and I'm going to close with this verse, but we have to get to it because it's the climax of the whole prayer. In verse 24, he made a second request for his followers, and it was not a petition with regard to this life. It's a petition with regard to the next life. He asked that his father, um, that he asked of his father that his followers be heavenly witnesses of his glory and that will not take place until we have left this world and all the sheep have come in and one day we are gathered before the throne of god and the throne of christ and we will see him in his glory notice for the first time in this whole prayer he uses those words i will i will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where i am he's speaking to god the father as an equal he spoke as though this desire is his right. And is it his right? Yes. 
because it was with his sinless blood that he purchased those he wills to be with him in eternal glory. This I will statement here has been seen by many to be the Lord's last will and testament. Have you ever been left in somebody's will? Well, if you haven't, you are. You're left in the Lord's will and testament. And there's no greater will legacy to inherit than that, is there? And this is the legacy he left behind for us. And what a wonderful, unsurpassable legacy it is. The fellowship that we have with Jesus Christ in this life is going to increase in the life to come when we will behold his full glory. And when it says that they behold my glory, it's given in the present tense, continuous tense, so that it means we will be beholding his glory. And this isn't going to take place until he has ransomed, preserved, sanctified, glorified, and fully united every single one of his followers before him in heaven. And what is the glory we're going to behold? Well, it's the glory that was the special glory his father gave him as a reward for his finished work of redemption. So it's not only, it's his redemption glory. And also added to that is his um, essential glory as eternal God, uh, eternal son and creator God. So it's combined glory. You know, the work of the savior glory and the eternal son of God glory and the creator God glory. And I, I don't know what that, I mean, I hasn't begun to imagine what kind of glory that's going to be. Somebody told me we're going to have to have special eyes, glorified eyes to behold that kind of glory. But that's what we're going to continually see and and worship and magnify throughout eternity. So his prayer, and this would be enough if it was just his will that we be with him where he is. Isn't that wonderful? That's the heart desire of our Savior, that he wants you and I with him throughout all of eternity, that he has our presence with But it's more than that. It's for us to be firsthand witnesses of his full, unveiled glory. And that involves even more than just being spectators. We're not just going to sit there with our eyes like this. At his glory, you know, looking at him throughout all of eternity. It involves more than just being spectators of his glory. It includes common enjoyment of that glory and a participation in that glory, as well as sharing that glory. I just cannot imagine. That's going to be the full satisfaction of the believer. But let's stop looking at it from our perspective, as wonderful as it is. Let's look at it from his perspective. You know, that is absolutely the desire of his heart. That's why he left the bliss of heaven to come down to this nasty little world. So that he could die for us and one day we would be with him and see him for who he really fully is. He longs. Don't you long for reunion time with those who have gone before you that you loved and they're in heaven? Don't you long for that reunion? Well, you know what he longs for? He longs for finally that reunion with the entire family of God. All of us. More than just the bride. He, of course, he's waiting for his bride. But go beyond that. From the apostles. For, go back all the way to Adam and Eve. To the very last saint of the millennial kingdom. That's going to be the whole family of God. Billions and billions and billions. And he's waiting for us all together to be with him. And beholding his glory and sharing in his glory and being there forever and ever and ever. Wow. Mm. And I hope it'll be soon. But we do have to go through, we don't have to go through, but it's seven years. So it's at least a thousand and seven years away. 
<laughs> All right, let's pray. Father, may we have come to comprehend something of the depth and the richness of the words of this high priestly prayer of your son to you as we've considered them together these past weeks. And, and may we not forget them, Lord, but may we review them often. And we ask that, that the mysterious unity created by the coming of your spirit and the indwelling of your son would truly be visible in practice not only here in this setting, and among believe, but among believers everywhere around this earth. May we be in practice what we are in position. May, may we be of one heart and one soul and one purpose, striving together for the faith of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom of your Son, and for your glory to be displayed in the earth through our individual lives and through our corporate lives as the family of God. Lord, we also earnestly do pray for the coming of your son that we may be with him where he is and eternally behold his glory and we thank you so much for revealing your eternal purposes to us so that even in the midst of this troublesome world and the heartaches of this life we can be of good cheer knowing that nothing is going to prevent what you have declared to come to pass. And we do love you, and we do thank you, and we do praise you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.